This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hi, Joanna. Um, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. We are going to be talking about your book, Surreal Spaces, today that you um, wrote uh, recently. Your book is an incredible account of your relationship with your long-lost cousin and world-renowned artist, Leonora Carrington. You explore Carrington's upbringing, relationships with family, friends, and lovers, her discovery of self, and the places she was tethered to the world at. What was it like discovering Leonora was your cousin? Well, thanks very much for having me on the book. Really, really great to meet you, Ali. So, yes, the friendship, the relationship that that, uh, developed between Leonora and I was in very many ways an extremely unlikely one, because although she was my father's cousin, she had been basically estranged from our family for decades. And when I was a child, I was aware that there'd been someone in our family that there'd been uh, some kind of scandal and that something rather thrilling had happened and some and this uh, character, Prim, as she was known, had gone. And I did attempt to find out a bit about it by talking to, you know, my granny and my Leonora's brother, my father, people who'd known her before she'd gone. But I could they I got a brick wall. There was nothing. There was nothing going to be revealed. But I, you know, I like to think I was enough of a journalist even then to know there was a story here. Anyway, many years passed three decades or so. I was in my early 40s living where I am right now, speaking to you from, which is South London, raising my four kids here. And a parent with a child in the same class as one of my kids at school had a little drinks do. So it was nothing arty or grand or connected. Mm -hmm. It was mostly parents from the child, from, you know, the same class as my child's class at school. There was one person there who wasn't a parent and she turned out to be a Mexican art historian. I had a little conversation with her and I was at the end of the conversation, I was about to turn away. And I said, oh, just one more thing, just one thing. Um, I said, I'm sure you will never have heard of my dad's cousin. She was connected with art and she ended up in Mexico, I'm pretty sure. But that was really all I knew about her. Mm-hmm. And um, her name was, and then I remembered her name because in our family, she was called Prim. I said her name was Leonora Carrington. And this one was astonished. She kind of <laughs> onto the to the table and she said, I can't believe you're saying this. Leonora is basically a national treasure in my country, in Mexico. She's the most famous living artist. Well, she was certainly one of the most famous living artists that was going to turn out. And she said, you must go and find her and see her if she's your cousin. And I had no clue that night how I would ever manage to do that. So it seemed a completely wild dream that I would ever be able to meet Leonora. But I did go home and Googled her and spoke to my father and other people who knew her in our family. And I was more and more interested in her. And then a few weeks later, out of the blue, I got an invitation to go to Mexico. I'm not a travel writer, I'm not a travel journalist, but I was invited to do a travel piece on the uh, Caribbean coastline of Mexico, Cancun. So I said, oh, well, I had no idea why I was going to pitch this piece because I don't write about travel. I suppose the Guardian travel desk might be interested. I said, but the thing is, I'll do it if I can find a place to write, but I must go via Mexico City because I knew mm-hmm. that's where it was. And uh, they said, no, 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 won't be possible, won't be possible. It was Club Med and they're flying out of Paris straight to Cancun, no chance. Anyway, I said, well, not interested then, I'm afraid. A few days later, mm-hmm. I was the PR person. They'd obviously tried every journalist they could think of in London. None of them could do it. So they come back to me and said, actually, you can go via Mexico City. 
So if you, I was in Mexico City, and I and I had Leonora. I hadn't spoken directly to Leonora. I just had I'd made contact through her gallery in Mexico City. The woman who ran the gallery had been going for tea with Leonora, and she said, "There's a cousin of yours might be in town." She said, "Well, give her my number. She wants to come around for tea. If I'm feeling okay, you know." Uh, she can see how thing we can see how things are. The first morning at ten o'clock, I which is I told I was told that she, you know, she surfaced at ten. So to call her <laughs> off, and I phoned her at one minute past ten, and um, she said two things. She said that I thought were very relevant. One thing was she said, "Oh, she said I've been waiting for you to call." Well, I found that interesting because it was one minute past ten, but I wondered if she'd been waiting for one of us to call. You know, for somebody right. to call family. And then the other thing she said was, well, are you going to come straight over? And I walked down the road. I was 10 minutes from her house. And I just spent the whole of that week with Leonora. And uh, when I left at the end of that week, I knew that I'd met somebody who I could learn a lot from about life mm-hmm. and who uh, mattered to me to know. And I hoped that uh, we could be friends. And I said to her, this has been wonderful this week, but I, it's not been enough. Can I come back? And she said, well, you know where I am. I'll, you know, I'll be waiting. And then I found a way of going back. And, and then I visited her twice a year from that year, which is 2006, until 2010 when uh, she died in 2011. So my last visit, mm-hmm. I was, we became close. That's such a wonderful story. And so wild that you 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 didn't know that. Your cousin, um, the name of your cousin would literally grip <laughs> a stranger. Yeah, some people have been surprised by that. And in retrospect, I'm kind of surprised by it myself. I mean, Leonora yeah. was a very, very, already a well-known artist, certainly mm-hmm. in art historical circles. And there had been an exhibition of her work in London in, in um, 1991. However, in 1991, I was having my first baby, rather difficult time of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing but for another thing and this is a bigger big issue i think leonora had had turned away from our family and she she'd she'd left right and if you leave your family and you basically say that the values of that family aren't really yours and you feel that to be the person you were you appear put on earth to be you need to go somewhere away from them that's a very big thing to say and it, it means people who are left really it doesn't, you know, they're not going to be looking for how famous you become. No. You've left people sad. And I would never say the right or wrong of either side of this story. But I know that there was great sadness in the family in England. And so... But, it created uh, a huge rift. It did create yeah. a big rift. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's very... Uh, I've got four daughters and I can't really imagine how I'd feel if one of mine... Uh, and she was so young, you know, she left when she was 20. And she was the only daughter as well. She had three brothers, but... There were no other girls. There's a big lot a great aunt who was her mother. No, that's very true. But she obviously going away and making a new life, which eventually was in Mexico, as you know, she managed to become this great artist mm-hmm. and leave the world with things that I don't think she c- could have done if she'd stayed in England. And then no. I think we would all be the poorer now for not having them. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, and it's really interesting to see the trajectory of her work, the pieces that were created because of her time in England, and then how it moved and shifted and grew with all of her travels, you know, and specifically her work ending in Mexico is just so phenomenal, especially when she was pregnant, I believe, with her first kid. We would not have what we have from Leonora at this moment if she had not left. I think, right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. think. And I think it's also, 
very interesting. And this is one of the things that I think I was trying to uh, wanted to discuss in in this in this new book. I think it's interesting that she really had to get away, as we've discussed. But her art throughout her life, throughout her very long and very prolific life, in her art and in her writing, she continually returns to her early times. She does. And she said herself, you know, can any of us escape our childhood? And she said, I don't think they can. Well, one thing we know is Leonora definitely couldn't. No. <laughs> she was talking about herself. And maybe, I mean, I'm sure she's right. None of us can. But maybe for reasons to do with her story, it was particularly difficult to escape her childhood. There's this irony, isn't there, that she takes herself away from it. And yet what she's left becomes the raw material for what she becomes in her new life. Completely. And it deeply inspires her. Yeah. And it's also, I would say, one of the reasons why she has taken a while to become a better known artist, Mm -hmm. because she was painting, as you know, in Mexico. Her work was largely being sold in Mexico and also in New York. But what she was painting and what was being sold there through the, I don't know, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, referred to Lancashire in Edwardian England. If you're an artist, it just strikes me that you're kind of better doing what Frida did, Frida Kahlo. Paint what's around you now, and then the people who are around you now get it. Exactly. Art historians in Mexico, for entirely good reasons, were probably not best attuned to what had been happening in Lancashire in the First World War. Yeah, it was difficult for them to relate to it. (laughs) I think so, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, of course, what we see with Frida Kahlo, who I often compare Leonora to, the people who were the first recipients of that art would Mm -hmm. have understood. It was their reality too. It was the, the streets they recognised. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why uh, why Leonora has had to wait a long time to get the fame I think she she actually deserves. Exactly. Exactly. And um, I do want to say what is so lovely about your book is that you create a step-by-step timeline of Leonora's history with, with pictures. I just want to show everyone that there are pictures here too. Great beautiful images. And you start with her upper-class life in England at uh, Lancashire, Crookie Hall, Hazelwood, and have done a phenomenal job of explaining how every place she stayed influenced her work. Did you talk much with Leonora about the individual artworks and their relation to her history, or did you discover those connections in your own research? Well, anybody who who knew Leonora will tell you the same thing about Mm -hmm. She was not interested in discussing her work with anybody really. Mm. She felt that when she had made a painting, that it was your job to decide what it was about and to take the messages from that canvas that were, that that made sense to you. So I feel in that way, she was a very sort of democratic artist. She was giving her art freely to, to anybody who wanted to spend time with it and see it. And she certainly wasn't the kind of prescriptive artist. And as you'll know better than me, these artists do exist who will want to tell you what every line and every colour and everything on their canvases means. Leonora was the complete opposite of that. So no, uh, we spent very little time discussing uh, her her work, Um, but her work was around. There were studies in the house. Most of her paintings had been sold because she was uh, a working mother and she was uh, at least a joint main earner, if not the main earner in her family. And she had two sons with her husband who was a photographer. So selling her work was very, very important to her. When I knew her in those last years, she wasn't surrounded by lots of paintings. Most of the paintings had gone. She had a couple there, 
and we occasionally used to go and sit in the room where they were and maybe look at them. I mean, she wasn't averse to, you know, chatting about a little bit of them, but I think she just didn't find it the most interesting thing either. You know, she was more mm-hmm. interested in American politics and what's in the paper today or what's happening on the street outside. The feminist movement. <laughs> you know, what she'd done and why kind of thing. I was always aware of a number of things. I was always aware how incredibly lucky I was to get this opportunity to spend time with Leonora. I was also aware that that time we spent together was as good as it's going as good as it kind of gets, you know, to to find somebody who you connect to and you think has got things to teach you about the rest of your life and to find that they have time to spend with you and and you're just going to have fun and learn a lot. Mm-hmm. That was gold for me and I knew how important that time was. And she was so inspirational. She was so inspiring in every way and we didn't uh, spend a lot of time talking about her work, but I kind of always knew, even in those days, that that would be another layer of her revealing herself to me. That even after she died, there'd be all this stuff she'd left, mm-hmm. I returned to. And I, I knew a bit about her work when she was alive because I actually curated a show of her work that was work back to England in 2010. So I, I was working with art historians. I was looking at her work, but then after she died, I retraced her steps across starting from Lancashire going right across Europe in the war and ending you know following in her footsteps and ending up in Mexico and so in that time and there've also been quite a lot of big exhibitions of her work over the last few years so I've seen a lot more of her work and I certainly became I was very aware um, of how much the places and the memories of places had played out on her canvases many many years later as well as the the new reality of Mexico, that's also there, as you mentioned, um, but not as much as you might think. You know, if okay. you look at a European artist who's ended up in Mexico and she arrived in Mexico in a very exciting moment, 1942, you know, there's all the muralists, it's Frida Kahlo, there's all this happening. It's the most, according to Andre Breton, it's the most surreal nation in the world. Mm-hmm. And Leonora there and paints what happened in Lancashire in the 1920s and 30s. So you know, she's not doing the obvious thing, but she did paint some some paintings of our Mexican in character, as you know. Mm-hmm. No, she did. And uh, I really loved uh, Breton's quote about how uh, Mexico is the most surreal country in the world. And a part of me wonders if that's, in a way, why Leonora found home there, because she was so surrealist in her actions and her thoughts and her ideas. And I, I wonder if herself and the country just kind of married in a way. I think there's a lot of serendipity and chance. I, I'm very interested in, you know, what's chance in life? Mm-hmm. And actually, what slots into place? And what do we make slot into place? Because we find ourselves somewhere and, and it works or doesn't work. And then we change things and I think that's right that um it was a complete chance that that took Leonora to Mexico it was a chance meeting with a Mexican after she'd left Max Ernst who'd been her lover Mm -hmm. Uh, he'd been taken Renato is the Mexican yes Yes, the Mexican poet before that it's a a relationship with Max Ernst and that had Mm -hmm. taken her part of the surrealists in Paris and then she and Max had lived in the south of France and they'd had this wonderful time together Mm -hmm. but then he imprisoned because he was German and this was Vichy France so they, he was the enemy although of course he was no he left Germany because of the Nazis so mm-hmm. all the same he was imprisoned and she left because she had uh, a breakdown and she needed to get some help and she went off with a friend into Spain and then a lot of other things happened to her but there was a moment in her life when she was all alone in Madrid 
and she saw and she had no money, no friends. She turned her back again on her family for another time. They tried to get her back to Angshou and she'd refused to go. And she looked across the crowded restaurant and she saw a man she'd known through Picasso in Paris. And that was a Mexican guy, as you rightly say, Renato Ledoux. And the two of them then hatched a plan to go together to Mexico to get married because that was the way Renato could get her out of Europe. Once married to a Mexican, she had the right to travel and they went to New York and Leonora could have stayed in New York. It was largely a marriage of convenience, so Renato. Mm-hmm. They were very good friends, but... How long were they in New York for? They were in New York for several months, at least I'd say eight months, okay. eight or nine. Yeah. And then, uh, and she, and I think Leonora's, so this is now 1941, 42, mm-hmm. and Nora's work, Leonora was doing well in New York. And as you'll know, uh, most of the surrealists who've been in Paris before the war, they traveled across the Atlantic and they landed up in New York. So she was... And Ernst with Peggy Guggenheim. Ernst with Peggy. I'm a Dales and Forming. There's a, there's a photograph in this book, in fact, of the, of the whole group in New York. Here it is in Peggy's apartment. These are some of the, you know, the stars of the art world of, of surrealism. And, and Leonora was, was doing very well there. So she mm-hmm. could have stayed in New York and she'd probably be much better known today if she had, I think. Yeah. But she was determined to play out. This is how I see it anyway. She was determined to play out this story, to take it to the end of the line, to see what, what this life could, in Mexico it could be like. So they headed down to Mexico. She never saw Max Ernst again. The, the, the last time she would have seen him was in New York in 1942. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right that she got to Mexico and she was in a place that was completely alien, but also remarkably familiar. There mm-hmm. were things about Mexico that she really connected to with and understood. And they were very deep, instinctive things, you know, magic and instinct and being close to the earth. And on many, many levels, I think um, Mexico really resonated. So you traveled around to follow Carrington's footsteps and recreate her history for us to read. How many places did you visit altogether? Well, I started from from the house where she grew up in Lancashire, Cookie Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went from there to, I saw the place, uh, well, I, I already had knew actually the places where she was at school. And she was expelled from her two boarding schools in Berkshire and in uh, Essex. Um, I went to Cornwall, um, where she first sort of got to know the Surrealists in 1937, having met Max Ernst earlier that year. And the, the, that was a very important moment in her story because she really, she knew that she didn't fit into her family. And then in these weeks, she spent in Cornwall with all the surrealists, Man Ray and, uh, and Lee Miller mm-hmm. uh, and Roland Penrose, her partner, and many others. She realized that it was a, another whole way of being. And she realized that these, these people felt more like her family than her family. So that was her direction of travel. So I visited that house in Cornwall. Then uh, I, I uh, obviously, I live in London, and there are places in London where she. There's a very important place in London is the flat in a in a block of flats called High Point in North London, mm-hmm. where Nora met Max Ernst for the first time in June, very early June, nineteen thirty-seven. Was that at a dinner party? It was at a dinner party organized yeah. <laughs> by um, an architect called Erno Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. Yes. Goldfinger being the name that uh, would later be used James by Bond. <laughs> enemy, enemy, Ian yeah. Fleming. They fell out, basically, and that's how he became the baddie. 
but that was all in the future. So Leonora was at art school. She was at a very small art school at the time. And one of her fellow students was Ursula Blackwell, who was married to Erno Goldfinger. So there's this dinner party. So I've been to that flat and that's really very wonderful to see it. It's exactly as it was. Many of these places are as they were. There's also the house, actually another house where they lived in Lancashire called Hazelwood. And then Paris, I went, I found the the, the address in Paris where she and Max Ernst had lived and visited there. I wasn't able to get in there, but then I went to the south of France to a village called Saint-Martin d'Ardèche, which was a really important moment in Leonora's story because that's where she and Max sort of retreated to when things got difficult for them in Paris. And they had this wonderful year really together there painting. The, the fabric of the house, painting on the walls, making vast relief on the walls, painting on canvases as well, painting each other, just really enjoying their life together and making art. Yeah, the exterior shots of the house. And I was incredibly lucky because the uh, that house, I call that house a, a secret treasure trove of surrealist art. And it really is that. You know, and the art is not stuff that can be taken away and put on gallery yeah. walls. Because it's on the walls. No, it's, it's embedded. In, it's embedded in the house. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, uh, so it's never been open to the public, and there are no plans to make it open to the public. So it's a, oh, a really, really space. And I was so lucky that the very kind owner has has given me so much access to it. And that really is one of the big reasons why I wanted to do this book because I knew I had something that really was worth sharing and had access. Well, I, I yeah, I've been lucky to get to know the guy and he's been very very kind so there was and, and the only reason that that I got to know him in the first place was Leonora was still alive the first time I went there so I went to see the house and my intention was to go back to Mexico and tell Leonora about this house she'd never been back since the day she left wow 1941 and of course I never was able to do that because Leonora died very soon afterwards but I, I then got to know the owner and he uh, very very um, generously invited me back and then I went to Spain to the place where Leonora was held in a in a psychiatric hospital very very grim time in her life madrid where she met renato lisbon very interesting place where a lot happened to her and then across to new york and then on to obviously mexico city and of course i knew mexico city well by the time i wrote this book because i spent so long there with with leonora and then later in her life and very important for me because i'm the kind of age now that she was when she was doing this she left mexico and based herself again in new york and chicago later and you know I think that's an extraordinary testimony to her that at a time in life and she was literally the kind of age I am now in her 50s and her 60s at a time when you know you're able to or it might seem appealing to kind of be a bit more comfortable in your life she was always going to the the place that wasn't the comfort zone she, she ended up living on her own in a basement flat in New York very little money not really selling her work but she the thing she was always was curious. She was curious about the world. She didn't want to just settle somewhere where things were easy. She wanted, she wanted to find out, to go on searching. She was always such a searcher. Well, and also her time in New York when she was in her 50s, there was a level of anonymity when she was in New York at that time and creating versus when, you know, she's in Mexico City and a British-born artist. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think that she knew the, you know, the learning that we do about ourselves and the world when we take ourselves into places where we have to kind of not exactly reinvent ourselves, but, but 
decide again who we are against the backdrop of this new place where we find ourselves. She was always, she was very good, I think, at making new friends. All these places I visited, I, I mean, obviously this was mostly New York and Chicago because the places that I was in in Europe, she'd left so many decades mm-hmm. ago, nobody really was there. I mean, sometimes I was able to meet the children or grandchildren of people who had known her, but on the whole, it was handed down knowledge. Whereas in Chicago, particularly, and also in New York, I was able to meet people who knew her, who remembered her from those days. And they were often, she seems to have often befriended people who were, you know, not necessarily her age group, often younger people. And she was obviously very good at making friends. Not often the people she got to know were other artists, uh, maybe younger artists, you know, who were who were more starting out. That's a, a very inspiring, I think, as well, part of her story. In regards to your travels, of all the places that you did visit, which did you find the most intriguing? I know just from your writing, uh, Saint-Martin d'Ardèche is definitely on my bucket list now. I'm a little heartbroken that I can't go there in person. Well, I mean, can't necessarily go onto private property. But um, the way that you described it in the book was absolutely enchanting. That was very kind. I'm glad you, I'm glad you uh, liked that. Because I say that that was a, a really important part of writing the book describe Saint Martin and the house there. I mean it was that was a very, very special place. I kind of found Leonora in all the places where she'd been. I could uh and I I found, you know, it's wonderful when you're writing about any artist, or sorry, anybody, um, it uh, when you're when you're, you know, embarking on on a biography um or any biographical work, to stand in the space where your subject was, to 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 sort of see the views they saw, to smell the air they smelt, to hear the sounds of the birds they heard it brings you close to the person and of course I'm so lucky because I really knew Leonora but she's been gone now for quite a few years and when I go back to those places I can find something of her there and actually a very important moment for me was reading there have been various places where I've been able to read her letters one of them is New York is in the Morgan Library in New York in the Pierre Matisse collection because Pierre Matisse, the son of Henri Matisse, was her dealer in New York. And they were close, particularly in the early years of her being in Mexico. And what was wonderful about going to the Morgan Library and opening that box and looking through those letters was, Leonora was dead by then, of course, but it was as if she was talking in my ear. And I I could, the, the words that, that I was reading were her voice and that gave me a lot of confidence to go forward and do and, and do the work I wanted to do because um, I knew that the Leonora I'd known was the same Leonora who had come. You, you know, she'd always been this really strong character. She'd always been like they say of all of us, don't they? We always we're all nineteen in our head. All that 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 person. You know, it should have been that the person I'd known was that person. But now I was absolutely sure the letters were very important as well. And her house in Mexico as well, which is now owned by. Wham, the uh, the uh, one of the universities of Mexico City is now a museum, mm-hmm. uh, not exactly a museum, but it's called the Casa Studio. It's it's, a, it's effectively a museum. You have to book to go in there, but uh, that house has been recreated to be as it was at the end of Leonora's life, so at precisely the time when I knew her. And it's of course very moving to be in that house for not just for me, but for anyone. And you're really. Um, going into the most bright, you know, the most um, sort of intimate spaces of Leonora's life, her bedroom, the kitchen, where she basically held court for decades. Anybody who you talk to or you read about who knew her in Mexico will talk about the kitchen, um, which really was the centre of her world. And now it's all there for people to go and 
and see. And I think they'll feel closer to Leonora for doing that. Yeah, completely. I definitely want to visit <laughs> her her home now museum. That's not so far for you to go as far. No, no, I know. It's, it's a little bit easier for me to get there than you. <laughs> when reading this, I did find myself laughing out loud at some of Leonora's quotes. She was definitely a firecracker of a person with strong opinions and a lot of insight. I definitely laughed out loud at her comment on uh, Picasso and Man Ray. Um, she was truly in the center of the art world during her time in France and then in New York although she met many artists in her relocation to Mexico. Which artistic relationships do you feel were her most impactful, aside from the obvious, like Ernst? I think Ernst was very, very important in mm -hmm. her, her life because, uh, because he sort of opened the world up for her in a way that she hadn't known about uh, that world before. But I think beyond that, the, probably the most important, there were many, many relationships in Leonora's life that were very, very important. She was very interested in other people. So uh, relationships were very important to her as a person who'd be curious about you. You know, mm -hmm. she wasn't, wasn't one of these people who just wants to tell you about themselves. She wanted to hear about you. But I think a very important uh, relationships. Uh, well, it was a pair of women who were her friends in Mexico City. So she'd ended up in Mexico because, as we've said, she married a Mexican. But many artists from war-torn Europe were landing up in Mexico. Mexico had an open door policy in the 1940s. It was it was it was taking in refugees. It was um, and it particularly took in um, a lot of kind of intellectual refugees, people who were writers and artists. There was a you know group of them in Mexico City. So Leonora was able to connect with that group. And in fact that's what she did when she left the husband, Renato Leduc. He was a poet in fact, but their marriage didn't survive. And he, of course, was Mexican. But then she met this new group of friends, and two, and they were they were they were artists and writers from Europe, and they would all stay in Mexico for the rest of their lives. And there were two women in that circle in particular who were very important. One was Remedios Faro. Faro was an, a Spanish painter, um, and the other was a Hungarian photographer called Katy Horner, partner of a, a, a Spaniard, Kose Horner, but she was actually Hungarian. And the three, those three women spent a lot of time together. I always think, you know, Leonora had left her family, but I think in those women, she maybe had people who became almost sisters. So they, they were close. They spent a lot of time together. They didn't collaborate directly on work. Leonora very rarely collaborated with other artists directly on work. Mm -hmm. One place where she did was with Katty's husband, Jose Horner, and uh, she did, he was an amazing craftsman. Mm -hmm. And, uh, she did some wonderful paintings on the side of a crib that was made for Katy and Jose's daughter, Nora, who's still there in Mexico City to this day. And her, the beautiful crib, which was in a museum in Mexico City for some time and is shown in, sometimes in museums now. So that relationship between those, those two women, I think, was very, very important. Um, sadly, Remedios died in 1963, so that relationship wasn't as long, but Katy Horner lived into the 21st century and they were close as older, older women as well. Yeah. Well, and it was really interesting how she found such strength in connections with her female counterparts, like uh, Remedios Varro and Caddy uh, Horna, especially because Leonora, I mean, she was always an artist, but she really came into the art world during a time that was dominated by male artists, um, like Dali, Duchamp, Mata, Man Ray. I mean, th th they were all around when she was creating. And 
Much of art history likens the rise of female artists to their partners. Most are known as the wife of or the lover of some great male master, but Leonora was always an artist in her own right, creating work since childhood and never wavering in her abilities. And it's a complete disservice to call her Max Ernst's lover, like so much of the art world did for such a long time. How do you think she would feel knowing that her work is getting recognized by the art world? I think there's no doubt is that artists, any artist works, creates works to communicate. Mm-hmm. That's about it's communication. And it's communication probably more than any other way of communicating other than, I guess, writing, being a writer. If you, if you either write books or you paint on canvases or you create art, you're doing something that you hope will have a longevity beyond your own, aren't you? That's what it's about. It's about communicating with people in another time and space and saying something that you think is important that that generations from now can also pick up on. So I think although Leonora was, um, she was never going to change the way she lived in order, she was not chasing fame or looking for fame because I think she thought that would compromise what she wanted to do in the here and now, in that moment in her life. But I think like any artist, you know, she put, she sent her work out there and I think she couldn't fail to be because what what who, how could an artist fail to be pleased that people were, were were looking at the work again and and thinking it was interesting and had things to say in the in the 21st century i think she would be humbled by it but also very proud mm-hmm. and pleased that she that things she had to say and that she really felt from her heart were things that resonated with other people even people now some years on completely Well, and the themes of her artwork, I do really feel are timeless. So, you know, I I think that we'll be seeing a lot more love for Leonora than we already are. And um, also, I'm I'm just wondering, what what do you think she would say, knowing that the latest Venice Biennale was named after her children's book, The Milk of Dreams? Yeah, I can imagine that she would have, she wouldn't have believed it, that that was something. But I'm, I'm. I'm sure, or I'm pretty sure, as sure as people can be, that uh, she would have been really proud that that Biennale was, as you know, the first Venice Biennale in all the decades, how old is it, 70 years or something, for, in all mm-hmm. the years of Biennale, the, um, the first one that's really properly focused on women's work. And Leonora was always interested in the question of why it was so much harder to be a female than a male artist. And I think she would have been very, very proud of her part in changing the narr- that, that bit of the narrative in a really important place in the art world, as you know. I mean, Venice is a, the Venice Biennale is a cutting-edge part of the art world, and it matters what happens there. It does. I, I love that quote that you have where I think Leonora was napping and she awoke. How did it go again? <laughs> yeah, she, 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 she'd been asleep and I was just reading and I just thought she was asleep. And then suddenly she kind of um, sat up just suddenly shot up in, in the bed and said, um, um, why do you think it is that um, that it's been so much harder to be a woman artist than a woman writer? Why is that? And I realised that she hadn't been asleep. She'd been in that phase that's between sleep and, and wakefulness when her brain was mulling over that that thought and she was, and, and we often used to talk about one of the things she often mentioned was where were women during the Renaissance? Um, and now my next stage of my journey as a writer is yes. going to Florence and I found 
the woman artist I wish I could have told Leonora about, but I'm going to write about her. And so I hope that wherever oh, Leonora that's so exciting. Be, uh, you know, I know I know she'd be with me in spirit on this journey because um I know that it you know, she she was so interested in where women where 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 were the women yeah. in, in those centuries in Italy. So that next stop. So yes. hopefully I'll come back and talk to you about that one. Oh my gosh, I'm so can can you can you tell me who it is or yes, you tell you she is called Plautila Nelly. Oh, and yes. she is a, uh, uh, her, her dates are 15, um, 24 to 88. She was in Florence. She lived and died in Florence. Um, and She was uh, the nun, right? She was a nun. And a few decades after Leonardo da Vinci, she painted A Last Supper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whereas people queue up and cross the planet to see Leonardo's Last Supper, her Last Supper three or four times ended up almost destroyed. And I'm going to tell the story in my next book about how that painting was saved and how it now hangs in Florence. And in telling the story of that painting, I'm also, I hope, going to tell the story of, uh, of, of, of where women were and how, they, how, how difficult it was for them to work, but how some women did manage to work, including mm-hmm. Nellie. And I yeah. think she's the ancestor of all the women artists who followed her. And that, Completely. of course, is Leonora. Yeah, there's so much. The story of women's art, the story of women artists, I've always said this, is being told backwards. So if you ask people to name women artists, they're much more likely to say artists, well, they'll say Frida Kahlo, they might say Paula Rago, um, they might say Georgia O'Keeffe. They're, they're, they'll Contemporary talk. and modern. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but if you ask them who was Lavinia Fontana, Artemisia Gentileschi, Plautilla Nelly, I mean, you're the first person I think, Ali, I've ever spoken to who's known who Plautilla Nelly was. Well, I actually, I didn't know who she was until I re- read uh, Katie Hessel's book, The Story of Art Without Men. <laughs> right. Well, I know Katie, she's my friend. And uh, yes. yeah, it's great that she's included. included yeah. Her. So, no, but, I'm, uh, I'm so excited to read this. story backwards because yeah. these women are the, the least visible women in the story of of, uh, of women artists. Mm-hmm. No, and, and there's so little history on them. There's so little documentation. And it it's going to be a feat, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. going going over and researching all of that. And I, I cannot wait to read your next book. Well, very kind. I really hope you, and I'm so glad you've enjoyed the Leonora one. Obviously. Oh, it's been fantastic. I, I, I've loved Carrington for a while, but to re- read this memoir bio and learn about her history, she has she is just such a wonderful person. And I, I, I would like to ask you just one last question: um, What message do you think Leonora wanted to share with the world? Because she had so many quips and j- j- just such an insightful person. Yeah, that's quite that's quite a, a hard question. I, know. I think, uh, yeah. Um, I think that she was always very much in favor of us being true to ourselves and being authentic to ourselves. I think that was really important to her. And I think that she always encouraged others around them, around her um, and just the rest of us, you know, to really always um, sort of interrogate why we are doing the things we do um, to, to be clear about what matters to us. I think she was also very, very attuned to not just the stuff that we can see, not just the, the, the here and now, 
you know, this desk, this cup. She was very interested in the layers of humanity, the layers that make up our lives, our history, our relationship with, with the natural world. And, you know, she was interested in that in the 1940s. And the stuff that she was writing about, sorry, writing about, but also painting in the 1940s is the cutting edge stuff of the climate crisis and the ecology today. You know, yes. she was, was way ahead. Um, but I think what she gave me, um, and I think that she would, you know, um, and I think that she would have given it to anyone who'd, who who had been lucky enough to spend time with her, was just this this thirst for curiosity, this curiosity that that went that that that, that went on and on, and um, uh, and I think that uh, you know it was almost sort of uh, she almost transmitted it to others because you could see how enriched her life was by by being always curious. It was always very curious. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us. And everyone, I hope that you enjoy Surreal Spaces as much as I did. And just thank you. Thank you for writing this. It was a phenomenal read. And I can't wait to read what you do next. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.